Scripture reading this morning is from Acts. Carl is continuing, continuing his series on Acts. And it comes under the heading of the first judgment. So Acts chapter 4. From verse 32, it's under the heading, Believers Share Their Possessions. All the believers were of one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses and sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need." Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife... Excuse me. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, "'Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land?' Oh, yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. This is the word of God. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
your word to us, but Lord, these uh, are troubling words. Uh, And so, Father, we ask that as we look at them, that you would help us to understand them uh, and to trust you uh, and to trust in Jesus Christ. We ask it for his sake. Amen. Well, there are a few passages in the New Testament, I think, which are sadder and more challenging than, uh, than this passage. Uh, it's challenging because it confronts us with the reality of the church, uh, this side of eternity. Despite the glamorous portrayals uh, of the good side of the church in the book of Acts, pictures of the church uh, living and working together, despite those uh, p- glamorous pictures, we have also instances like this, where the church uh, is seen as still uh, under threat from sin. The end of Acts 4 uh, that Chris read for us is the kind of thing that we like to put on the church website. People helping each other, loving each other. But Acts 5 is the kind of thing that we want to put under lock and key. (laughs) But actually God has left it in the Bible. God God didn't let these problems in the early church be kind of glossed over. He put them there to teach us. This passage confronts us with the reality of the church, this side of eternity. It also forces us to rethink some of our assumptions about God and the nature of God's grace. It confronts us with judgment and fear. And perhaps even more unsettling, uh, it confronts us with sudden judgment. Judgment which seems just to sort of appear out of nowhere. It unsettles us as we ask questions, I think, about what kind of God it is that we serve. Is God an ogre? Doesn't God allow people to repent, to mend their ways, to be warned? And this passage, I think, also challenges our our conception of effective evangelistic strategy. The result of God's judgment here is great fear, which seizes the whole church, and it actually seems to keep people away. People are afraid to join the church. But great fear is not usually a string in the evangelistic bow of most churches. So how do we come to terms with this difficult passage? Well, I think the best place to start is with trying to understand what it is that Ananias and Sapphira did that was so wrong. What they did has to be understood in the light of that picture of the life of the early church. At the end of chapter 4, we're reminded by Luke of the wonderful life that the Christians had together, how they shared with those who, uh, among them who had a need. And right at the beginning of the chapter, in, uh, at the end of the chapter, sorry, in verse 36, we're given that example of one man in particular, Joseph, who sold a field that he owned and who brought the money and who put it at the feet of the apostles so that that money could be shared with, uh, with those who had a need. It's a great picture, isn't it? It's a beautiful picture of the love and the compassion of the church. But as good as that church is, the actions of Ananias and Sapphira remind us that the church is a mixed church. And sadly, it's actually the good things going on in the church, the love and the compassion and the generosity and the sharing, it's actually those things that actually lead Ananias and Sapphira to do something evil. 
Ananias and Sapphira see the generosity of others and they get this great idea for themselves. They hatch a plan to also sell a plot of land and to bring the money to the church, but they decide to keep back some of the money for themselves. Ananias takes the money, he lays it at the apostles' feet, but when he does that, Peter knows what, has, what he's really done. And he says to Ananias, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men but to God. And at that moment, Ananias falls down dead. The issue that Peter highlights is not that they kept some of the money for themselves. The issue is that they wanted people to think that they'd given all of it. So look again at what Peter says in verse 4. He says, Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What Peter means is they owned the property before it was sold and they could do with it whatever they wanted. They could keep it, they could farm it, they could hang on to it, whatever they wanted. And after the property was sold, the money still belonged to them to do with whatever they wanted to do. They could have kept it, they could have put it in the bank or whatever they wanted to do. They didn't have to sell the property in the first place and after it was sold, they didn't have to give the money away. The money and the property was theirs to do as they saw fit. The problem was not keeping some of it. The problem was pretending to be generous, to be more generous than they really were. The problem was pretending to give it all when in actual fact they only gave some of it. When Sapphira comes in uh, later on, that's exactly the point on which Peter questions her. He says, uh, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yep, that's the price, she says. The root of the issue is wanting to keep up appearances mixed together with greed. They were trying to trick people in the church into thinking that they were more spiritual than they really were. They wanted people in the church to think that they were wonderfully generous when they weren't nearly as generous as it looked. The desire to keep up appearances, I think, is for us surprisingly strong as well. So we can say to ourselves, well, I'd better go to church, otherwise what will people think? I'd better sing this song, otherwise what will people think? I'd better take the Lord's Supper today, otherwise what will people think? We do it to try and trick people into thinking that we're more spiritual than we really are. And in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, as in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, I should say, our efforts to keep up appearances are often attempts to cover up our deep sins. It's remarkable, isn't it, that this this extravagant display of generosity was intended to cover up greed. Isn't that right? 
Isn't that remarkable? They looked generous, but deep down they were trapped in greed. An external display to cover up the inner truth. So you can use excessive kindness at church to cover up your bitter and angry home life. You can use your public prayers to hide your life of barren prayerlessness. You might use your public statements about the goodness of God to hide your deep ingratitude. Isn't God a great God? When deep deep down you're a thankless person. You can use your social media platform to like and retweet social justice campaigns as a way of hiding your rank indifference to the suffering of people around the world. Or you can use your public denunciations of homosexuality and our sex culture to hide rampant lust and addiction to pornography. It's remarkable, isn't it? Actually, we use the very things that we're trying to hide to mask the sins which beset us. It was the attempt by Ananias and Sapphira to hide their greed with a public display of generosity that was deeply wrong and it was their attempt to hide their sin by false spirituality that led them to their downfall. But even still, doesn't God's reaction seem just a bit heavy-handed? After all, seeking to look good isn't so bad. Uh, You know, don't we all do that all the time in, in one way or another? And though it's wrong, and it's sometimes deeply wrong, can't we confess that to God and repent and turn away from it? And find grace in Jesus. Where's the grace here? But it becomes clear, I think, that the issue here uh, is not merely seeking to be thought well of by people. The deeper issue here in the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is seeking to deceive God. A number of times Peter highlights that that's the issue. He says in verse 3, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Verse 4, you have not lied to men but to God. Verse 9, how could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? The issue is lying to God or seeking to deceive God. I don't think they just wanted to be seen as generous. It seems to me that the issue is that they wanted to be seen to be part of this Christian community. They wanted to be seen as part of this vibrant Christian community that was sharing with everybody the wonderful gifts that God had given them. They wanted people to think that they were people of faith, that they were people who knew and trusted Jesus. The deep problem is that they were trying to say, we're part of this community, when in truth they weren't. And Peter says, what good is that? (laughs) What good is it if people think that you're part of the community when God can see through that? 
You're not lying to the church. You're lying to God. We're fools if we think that God can't see through our clever little schemes. The church is not the safe haven that you might think that it is. That's a, that's a kind of Catholic view of the church, that, that you just have to belong to the church, and the church is kind of a great big ark. We are saved from everything. But the account of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, I think, dispels the myth of the safety of the church. The church isn't a safe house where we can hide from God. People not only try and hide from God in the church, people try and hide from God in other ways too. Sometimes we try and trick God so we say, God, I really love you. Because we think that's what we're supposed to say and how we're supposed to feel, but it's, but it's not. But we think that if we say to God, God, I really love you, he'll be tricked. Or we say, God, I don't really want to sin. When actually, we really, quite frankly, we do. Or I really want to obey you, God. When, no, you're just as much not. God is not fooled by that. I remember when I was in kindergarten, uh, or prep, I suppose it is here, For some strange and unfathomable reason, I don't know if people did it in other schools or in other states, but for some strange reason, kids would walk around going, putting up their finger in front of their face and say, you can't see me, I'm hiding behind my finger. (laughs) The lunacy of pretending to hide behind a finger. People go, no, I can see you. No, you can't. I'm hiding behind my finger. And in a way, trying to hide from God is as stupid as that. It's like putting up a finger in front of our face and saying, God, you can't see me. I'm hiding behind my finger. I'm hiding behind the church. Hiding behind my lies and my self-justification. It's stupid. We can't hide behind the church. We can't hide behind good sentiments. The only place to hide, the Bible says, is in Jesus. God doesn't want us to pretend, and we don't have to pretend. God wants us to come to him in Jesus. And that means that we can say, I know I'm supposed to love you, God, but I don't. But I know that Jesus died to save me from that. I know that I'm supposed to hate sin, but I don't hate sin. but I know that Jesus poured out his blood on the cross so that that wouldn't condemn me. I know that I'm supposed to want to obey you, but frankly, a lot of the time it just seems like hard work. Please save me from that. Raise me up with Jesus. We think that being, with on, being honest with God is dangerous and that hiding things from God is safe. But the opposite is true. Hiding from God is dangerous 
while being brutally honest with God is the safest thing that we can ever do. You can come to God and say, God, I hate, I hate you. I hate what you stand for. That's really what I feel. But I know that that's not right. And I know that you can save me from that. Isn't that remarkable? That we can be God's enemies, bound up in the hatred of him. (laughs) And God still opens his arms in love to us in Jesus and says, come to me. And I'll set you free. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what other people in the church think. What matters is what God thinks of you. And we can't hide from God. And lying to God doesn't do any good. But pouring out the truth of who we are and the depths of our sin and pouring those things out at the foot of the cross is the safest thing that we could ever do. And there is nothing to fear from being open with God through Jesus. Well, Ananias and Sapphira tried to cover up their greed through generosity and they ended up lying not just to the church, to other Christians, but to God. And because of that, uh, they were struck down in judgment. And the result of that is that this great fear seized the whole church. Twice we're told that, verse 5, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And it's repeated for emphasis in verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. In fact, as I said before, it seems that part of the result of that was that some people were afraid to join the Christians. Verse 13, no one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. And yet, even despite that, there were some people who were not put off. Verse 14, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. We tend to come to this passage, I think, with questions like, how could God do this? Why didn't God give them a chance to repent? Did Ananias and Sapphira go to hell? I'm not sure that we can actually answer those questions. It's worth saying, I think, that the immediate judgments of God, that is, the judgments of God in this Life don't always reflect eternal realities. Moses uh, disobeyed God and was told that he would never enter the promised land. And yet he was still a man of faith, a man who believed God, and a man who was saved uh, through the death of Jesus. It may be that Ananias and Sapphira really did trust Jesus and that this was just one sort of terrible mis- mistake, one bad decision. One lapse in judgment. Whatever the case, we know that they heard the gospel. We know that they were challenged to repent and trust in Christ. But I think too that in asking those kinds of questions, we miss the point of what God is doing here. 
What happens to Ananias and Sapphira is not just about them, but it's a warning to the rest of the church. In a way, the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira is a little bit like the miracle in the chapter a few, few chapters back. In a way, the judgment is kind of the flip side of what God is doing. The judgment is foreshadowing the end of the world, just as the miracles of Jesus foreshadow the end of the world. At the end of at the return of Jesus, God will restore the creation, just like he does in the miracles, and at the return of Jesus, God will judge the world, just as he does here with Ananias and Sapphira. And just as not everyone is healed miraculously now, so not everyone is judged in this world as Ananias and Sapphira were. But just as those miracles are a sign to us of the hope to come, so the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira are a warning to us and a reminder to us of what God will do when Jesus returns. We can sometimes think that the Old Testament is a book of judgment, while the New Testament is a book of grace. But the Old Testament is a book of grace every bit as much as the New Testament is, and the New Testament is a book of judgment as much as the Old Testament is. In fact, it's probably more true to say that in the New Testament, both those things are ratcheted up a notch. That in the New Testament, we see the grace of God more fully as Jesus dies on the cross. But in the New Testament, we also see the judgment of God more fully in the warnings that Jesus gives about the end of the world. This message, the sobering message of this story, you see, is this, that Jesus will return to judge the world. Well, I find that a deeply, deeply troubling message. But the fact that something is troubling doesn't make it less true. Jesus found it troubling That's why he went to the cross. And the father found it troubling. That's why he sent Jesus to die. But please don't let the fear of judgment keep you from Jesus. And please don't think that the safest thing that you can do is to run away from God. And please don't think that the way to respond to judgment is to hide in the church to try and fit in, to try and make people think that you're really in when you're not. And please don't think that the way to respond to judgment is to try and trick God, to try and make him think that you love him when you don't. The safer thing to do is not to hide, but to run into the open arms of Jesus and say, I don't love you, and I don't want to follow you. Please forgive me, and change me.
stop hiding behind your finger and hide at the foot of the cross and in the arms of Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, it's a sobering message to be reminded of the end of time when Jesus will return and judge the world as these two people were judged many years ago. Lord, we find that troubling and rightly so. But Lord, help us to listen with open ears and open hearts to your most kind and precious warning that we might not be lost but might run to take hold of the hope held out for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, keep us from hiding. Help us to run to him. that round us the robe of his righteousness might fling and hide us from your judgment. And Lord, many of us know your grace. Many of us have run to you and know the joy of forgiveness and grace and mercy, kindness. Lord, help us to keep hiding in Jesus. Not to fool ourselves that we can keep things back from you, but to be open and honest, to know that you are a forgiving God, God who loves us as his very own children. And help us, Lord, to wait with great confidence for that final day. Not afraid, but firm in the knowledge that we belong to you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.